I'm going to go put my cat in the back room so that we don't hear the caterwauling. My son is about to come home. There may be some noises. Some more caterwauling. <laughs> Welcome back to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philly Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today, we're going to be talking about work from home and the outlook for cities. Our guest today is Andrew Gant, professor of finance at the University of Utah. She's written a paper recently called The Work from Home Technology Boon and Its Consequences, co-authored with Morris Davis and Jesse Gregory. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So I really like your paper. It's about work from home and its consequences. And for me, there were two main ideas. And so I want to take them one at a time. So I think the first main idea is that work from home and work from the office are imperfect substitutes. So maybe let's just start from there. If you could expand a little bit more on what you mean when you say that work from home and work from the office are imperfect substitutes. Perfect. Yeah, you've got, that is one of the big takeaways from the paper and it's something we find in the data. So so the goal of the paper is to sort of build an economic model of work from home in the production function. We first wanted to look at some data pre-pandemic and see what did work from home look like? And what we found was that most people who did work from home pre-pandemic did not do so exclusively. They're not that many 100% remote workers. Even pre-pandemic, what there was a lot of is people who did, you know, one day of work from home a week or one day every two weeks, or there was a bunch of different sort of varieties But there was a lot of people who did a little bit of work from home, more than you might guess. So sometimes we think that work from home was this brand new thing that came out in March 2020, but it wasn't, particularly for college educated workers. If they were in what we consider a telecommutable occupation, about 70% of them were already doing some work from home. They weren't doing a ton, but they were doing some. And so why does this matter? I think it matters because. As we've seen work from home increase, what we think is going to happen long term based on our estimates and sort of we're now getting more and more anecdotal data is we're going to see a whole lot more people doing hybrid weeks rather than sort of a ton of people doing 100% remote and then a huge set of people that haven't changed their work arrangements from pre-pandemic. Talk a little bit more about how you view the actual work tasks? And what about the exact kinds of tasks that we're doing as office workers that make it make sense to have a hybrid kind of setup versus a complete work from home setup? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're still, I want to say we're extrapolating a little bit in the paper from the Mm -hmm. task sort of thing, but that's exactly our intuition for why they're imperfect substitutes is exactly that there's some tasks that are more productively done at the office 
and some tasks that are more productively done remotely or at primarily at home, but you can be in Hawaii too, if that works better for you, wherever you want to be remote. And I think it's really the collaborative tasks at the office that because it's just a lot less costly to kind of run into a colleague's office or you know, lunch conversation for somebody just stop by quickly, those collaborative tasks, theoretically, you could schedule every single interaction online, but that gets really costly in terms of scheduling and interruptions. And so we think these collaborative tasks tend to be better done in the office. On the other hand, I think there's two types of tasks that are probably better done at home. And one of them I think is actually routine work. So so Nick Bloom and his co-authors, they've done a lot of work from home research on call center workers. And this is very routine work, right? This is doing the exact same thing. You're following a script, sort of choose your adventure from the script. And they're actually not much less productive, if any. Some of them are more productive when they work from home than when they're at the office. But I think it's the knowledge sort of tasks where you need collaboration that are better done at the office. The other task, Jeff, that I think is kind of better done at home is sometimes the really deep thinking work where you don't want interruptions. So for us, you know, the three of us are academics. We sometimes need to finish papers and I want no interruptions unless my co-author happens to be in the office. But most of the time when I'm in the office, somebody wants to gossip about the new dean, sir, PhD student might want to talk to me. Interruptions. So that's the sort of task-based framework. And I think there's a paper that just came out from, I think it's Mandy Pillay and Natalia Emanuel that looked at IT workers, which is great. I love the fact that we're seeing some research on the productivity of work from home from somebody other than call center workers. And what they found is sort of more in-person means more feedback on your code. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of collaboration I think is really valuable in person. Yeah. I mean, just from personal experience, you know, my job is partially research and partially management and doing research at home is great. It's exactly the kind of focus work where the lack of interruptions is kind of important factor, but managing remotely is kind of hell. (laughs) I just find it incredibly difficult and it's so much easier to just catch up with a bunch of people in the hallways or on an ad hoc basis. It's almost a reverse from the adage. One chance encounter in the hallway can substitute for 20 back and forth emails. Absolutely. In terms of research, I think it's important to distinguish between kind of finishing research projects that are already at a pretty advanced stage versus getting feedback on early stage ideas. So Sam Kruger, Gonzalo Maturana, they also have this paper where they look at how many papers were completed during COVID. And apparently academic, at least economists, we're just geeks. And all we did during COVID is we just finished our papers. And so we didn't look super unproductive. But I think what you'll see it show up as is longer term, two, three years out, particularly for junior researchers, did they not form the co-author relationship? Jeff, you and I are kind of mature, and so we <laughs> may have a set of co-authors. But if you graduated in 2020 or 2021, you might not have that co-author network yet. And so it might be hard. Yeah, for sure. That early career development seems really dependent on some of these in-person interactions. I really like this observation that the relative popularity of a hybrid schemes versus 100% remote, you know, it tells us a little bit about this imperfect substitutability. We can think about these things as substituting for tasks as opposed to jobs. So you can 
substitute for some of the in-person tasks from home pretty well, but not others. It's sort of a little bit of a pedantic point, but I think kind of to your point about different career stages and different types of jobs that lend themselves more to one setup or another, even within a job function, within a given week, you might have some tasks that lend themselves to one or another. One challenge, of course, is just coordination, which is that's one problem the pandemic solved because everybody in knowledge jobs became work from home. And that coordinating function is now thankfully gone. That introduces some frictions. So are there ways that you see firms coordinating like on core hours or certain days or how are they solving for that? Yeah. So Greg, you get at a great other point of the paper, which is what we think really changed during the pandemic is everybody adopted this technology that was already out there, right? There wasn't a ton of new technology surrounding remote work developed during the pandemic. It was existing technology. And that coordination mechanism economy-wide was what really allowed remote work to get more productive. We don't think 100% remote would ever be all that productive for most types of workers. But I think you're bringing up a really good point about how the companies are returning to the office and how they're kind of trying to manage this. We're only about 60% of firms have sort of announced their return to work policy right now. In Europe, it's about 80% because they've had a a somewhat uh, less tight labor market. So I think employers have had a little bit more leeway to get employees back to the office in Europe relative to the US. But I think that's exactly something employers are struggling with is how do I coordinate this? Like I could say, you just have to be in the office two or three days, but maybe that's not as effective as just saying you have to be in Tuesday, Thursday, the same days as your team, and then one day a month, the same as the whole firm or something. So I think it's a really good question because the coordination thing really does depend on certainly the same team. So Jeff, I I imagine you've struggled with this as a manager sort of like, oh yeah, I came into the office, but half my team wasn't. So then you have to go to the office one more day to catch up with those. So I, I think that is a great question, Greg, that I think companies are trying to resolve. Yeah. So so just to pick up on Greg's point a little bit further, this is the second most interesting idea in the paper. And it kind of stems from this observation that work from home was something that was happening before the pandemic. But Obviously, in the initial phase of the pandemic, like we were all forced to, to work from home, or many of us were forced to work from home. And so you just saw this rapid acceleration in the share of office workers who were doing exactly that, working from home. And you kind of hinted that in your last response, Andrew, but I wonder if you could expand on it a little bit more. What does that sequence of events reveal about the economic forces that you think are at work? Yeah, so I think there's some discussion as to whether it was always as productive as it is now, or, and we just didn't know it, or whether it really did change in its productivity. At our sense, it really did change in its productivity. Again, there wasn't any technology invention, but if you didn't have everybody who knew how to use it, it couldn't have been as productive. Suppose, Jeff, you were traveling and you really needed to talk to one of your research assistants it just would have been kind of difficult to arrange a Zoom call. And we know that that Zoom call is a little bit more effective because you can share your screen, you can see the results, you could have talked to them on the phone. But I think that it really was that adoption that made it more productive. I think there's another idea in the background, which is what we call a network externality, which is sort of everybody, this is sort of like the telephone, everybody needs to be using it. But because we have so much less work from home now than we did you know, a year and a half ago, We think the adoption externality is a little bit more important 
because if it was just a network externality, we would see work from home productivity dropping pretty precipitously as the amount of it goes down. Yeah, I remember we were all learning how to use the mute button in the, <laughs> the first month. But what's important for your theory, is it just the relative change in productivity at home versus the office? I can imagine another contributor here is that coordination is important, right? And so work in the office becomes a lot less attractive if people aren't coordinated in the office. Yeah, it's a great point. And yes, for all of our sort of urban implications and the main way we were trying to model work from home, we were trying to get at what are the implications for rents? What are the implications for where people live, where people do work? And so our main focus was getting, you're exactly right, the relative productivity is what matters. The coordination thing. So what we do see is in absolute terms, the productivity at the office goes down a little bit, exactly for the coordination reason you mentioned, Jeff, that if fewer people are going into the office, you don't get the, I assume all your listeners know the concept of agglomeration economies at this point, right? So you get a little bit less of that. Quantitatively, this wasn't actually that important. And that might be in part because we're modeling an overall city. And so we're sort of modeling that the parameterization we're using gets at agglomeration economies at the citywide level. Now, you're right. I think if you look within a firm, and I think this is where it'd be great to see some more research on this, is you guys are asking some sort of firm-specific questions. Yeah, I'm not going to go to the office other than I get great mountain views at the office. Most of the reason I go to the office, honestly, is can I be there in time for lunch with the colleagues? Mm -hmm. And if I think, okay, so... I know all my colleagues are out of the office this week. I'm much less likely to go in because I'm not likely to get that feedback and that conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And that gets at Greg's point of how do companies come up with a policy that gives their employees some flexibility, but still gets at those coordination synergies. Totally. In the paper, you and your co-authors develop an economic model of a city where people are choosing where to live. They're choosing whether or not to telecommute or how much to telecommute. And I think we've covered kind of like the core novel features here, which are the imperfect substitutability of work from home and work from the office and kind of this adoption externality and adopting these work from home technologies. And then you guys estimate the parameters of this model and then run some counterfactuals to try to estimate the impact of the sort of mass adoption of work from home on, on city structure. That was like an overview of the paper. Did I, did I characterize that correctly? Nailed that. I want to talk about a couple of modeling questions, maybe at a high level. The first is what I would think of as the most novel features of the model being the imperfect substitutability and this adoption externality. What role do they play in the results of the model and the counterfactuals using the model? Why is it important to have these elements? We already started with a good argument for why it's important to have these elements to kind of account for some of the facts and the data. What are the implications for the model of having these elements? Yeah, so it's a great question, particularly about the imperfect substitutability. So one modeling choice we're making is people aren't choosing which city to live in. They're sort of choosing where within a city to live in. So do they want to live basically central city or they want to live in the burbs, the far burbs? So think of it as that's basically the choice. And why do we think that that's the most important choice margin for where people live? It's this imperfect substitutability. So the media is focused an awful lot on 100% remote and all these workers that are going to all start working from Boise, Idaho, instead of New York City and Hawaii, if there's perfect substitutes, then that's what you'd expect to happen. 
in response to a big productivity change, you'd say, okay, so now I can live anywhere. Two reasons. So the imperfect substitutability suggests we won't see that many 100% remote workers long-term. Once all companies have forced their workers to adopt their new return to office policy. So the imperfect substitutability suggests unless you can commute once a week from Boise to Salt Lake City or wherever your office is, you're not going to see that much relocation across cities, at least in response to the choice of cities. So I think the view out there, Jeff, is that employees were previously forced to work in these cities because that's where their jobs were. And that was the only reason that anybody lived in New York. It was like, look, I'm forced if I want this job, I have to be in New York. So in our model, the imperfect substitutability suggests you still have to go in the office at least once a week, maybe twice, maybe even Mm -hmm. three times, or at least a couple times a month. And for most workers, it's not really feasible to commute across with a flight more than once or twice a quarter. The exception, which is not in our model, is these IT workers. The other thing I would point out, though, about these remote workers, you know, we did have a handful of these pre-pandemic. We can see them from the American Community Survey where they ask about commute mode. And so the people who respond that they're primarily not commuting, those are our primarily remote workers, they weren't all in these high amenity cities. They were sort of randomly scattered throughout the country in the same sort of employment shares as everywhere else. So it doesn't look like they had vastly different preferences for where they lived. And those of you who, I know you know this, Jeff, people who worked on urban economics models People are pretty attached to place. People don't just pick up and move to brand new places. They have family, they have kids in school, they have spouses, they have all these other attachments to place. I think the puzzle in urban economics is more why people don't move more across cities. Right. Given the wide dispersion and wages and amenities, yet the stylist fact is people tend to live within 100 miles of their mom. Exactly. And that's gotten more true in the last 20 to 30 years, which is surprising. Yeah. And it comes up in all sorts of places. So one important implication here is that I'm probably not going to be able to realize the dream of working from West Palm Beach or Mexico City, but maybe the Jersey Shore is still in play for me. That, I think that's exactly <laughs> the right way of thinking about it. You live in Philly, and let's just assume Jeff is single and doesn't have young kids in school. So yeah. he's, he's untethered by those sorts of constraints. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly the right way because you know, you're going to have to go into work at least a few days every couple yeah. weeks. Yeah. You developed this model in this paper, and the model is estimated then used to make predictions about what the future of cities is going to look like in the new work from home environment. I have another high level question. We know models are simplifications of reality, and we make these trade offs because you can't have everything in a model because that's you know, not tractable or it's not transparent and you don't know what's going on. And so there's always this trade-off about like, what do you include and what do you leave out? When you were writing down this model with your co-authors, what were you guys thinking in terms of what were the important things to include and what were the important things to leave out? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we were very focused on allowing for imperfect substitutability. And it does come out of our estimates that they're really quite far from perfect substitutes. But we wanted to allow for that, given the patterns we saw in the data. We wanted to allow for some gradual trend over time 
in work from home because we do see it trending up a little bit over time prior to the pandemic. And then we really wanted to capture city location and it was really designed to capture kind of rent. It was really important for us that space was in the production function because what we really think happened during in the first few months after the pandemic was there was this huge increase in the demand for residential space. And a lot of that was driven by the fact that if you're working more from home, you need more space at home. And it's not just your dedicated home office space. You also are using every other part of your home more intensively. You're using the bathroom more intensively. You're using the kitchen more intensively. Maybe you have some home gym equipment. When you think about the average office building, it has all these other spaces in it that you use. And so we wanted to make sure that space was in the production function and we could allow, we could see the substitute between what firms used to do at the office in terms of the office space they used versus what people are now doing with their home office space. We kind of wanted a bid rent model, basically, where there was a choice of location. Yeah, And I think we wanted space in the production function because two of the three of us are real estate economists. And so we were really kind of trying to get at what are the implications for real estate in terms of the modeling choices, we wanted to match the overall pre-pandemic patterns in work from home that we saw in the data. And then we wanted to give it kind of a, a reasonably rich urban structure. There's a lot of things we haven't done. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of things we think are important. I do think the 100% remote workers are somewhat important. They're mm-hmm. probably overwhelmingly in the tech sector. But I, I think for certain cities, for San Francisco, anecdotally, it is not coming back to its pre-pandemic self. Right. Tech workers are only about 3% of the labor force. But because they're so concentrated in certain cities, we weren't trying to explain differentially how it affects all these different cities. We were sort of saying, how is it going to affect the average American city? Yeah. And to be clear, I'm happy with the choices that you guys made because I think that the channels that you're emphasizing are really interesting and I think pretty essential. So, but when I think about some of the things that are potentially left out, like the 100% remote workers and some other ones that occurred to me were, what about these urban doom loop scenarios where there's impacts on municipal public finance and public services, if there's spill Spillovers to residential amenities like restaurants and coffee shops and nightlife. When I was trying to add these things up in my head, I was coming to the conclusion that maybe the risks around the sort of predictions of the model are weighted to the downside for cities. Do you think that's fair? Am I missing something? What so uh, what's you your view on that? The downside. More decentralization, more declines in the center. I see. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we actually we do see some movement out of the city centers, particularly for the college mm-hmm. educated workers. Mm-hmm. It's not as dramatic as we would have expected, in part because there's this parameter in urban economics models that sort of governs how your choice of location responds to the sort of deterministic component of utility versus, I just like the suburbs. It has nothing to do with greenways in the suburbs or the schools in the suburbs or your wages or your commute. It's just, I like the suburbs. And that parameter What we looked at based on the estimates in the literature, it's pretty much people have these pretty strong preferences for, I like the suburbs or I like the central city. So I hear what you're saying, though, is that one of the things that we don't have, if I can try to see if I understand the concern, we only have agglomeration economies in production. We don't have agglomeration economies in consumption. So there's no benefit in our model of staying close to downtown Philly because it has so much better restaurants than the suburbs or some people like to walk to work and that's not really feasible in the suburbs. So we don't have these sort of consumption menus. I think that's a very fair point is maybe that if you had consumption menus and you don't think you can reproduce those in the suburbs, 
which I think is quite possible because you need density, right? Largely for these agglomeration economies and consumption, you need a certain set of density. In Salt Lake City, we just don't have Tibetan restaurants. We just don't have that sort of density. And so is that answering your question? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And again, it's not, I don't mean to make a sharp critique. I'm just trying yeah, to no, that's fair. You know, really figure fair. out in what direction should I adjust the predictions of the model, depending on what I think is more or less important. In Philly, the silver lining is that the downtown office sector wasn't that strong to begin with. Downtown Philly is a pretty residential downtown in comparison to a lot of other major U.S. cities. But I can't help but think that part of the reason why downtown Philly in 2019 was a good place to live was because there was this big daytime population subsidizing restaurants or nightlife or retail for people who live there. That's what I'm kind of wondering about for the future. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And we have no retail in our yeah. model. Lindsay Relihan is doing a little bit of work on sort of how this relocation of people is affecting retail. And I think it's worth having a look at. I do think that what you're seeing is more establishments, if I recall correctly, in the suburban locations, mm -hmm. because people still want to eat out. People still want those services but they're more likely to be in the suburbs now. I think there's some big downsides of this from a sustainability standpoint, because a lot of our suburban cities are very car dependent. And also our homes are a little bit less energy efficient than your modern office building. And so I do think there's some big downsides, but yeah, I think there's some reallocation implications for retail towards the suburbs. I don't know if it yeah. changes overall amounts of retail, but I think it does reallocate some of that towards the suburbs. Now, how good that can get in the suburbs, I think depends a little bit on how dense you make those suburbs. And right now, a lot of them are not very dense. So you don't get those sort of quite the diversity of services you might get in a dense downtown area. Right. Are we trading off the very specialized or very high quality downtown restaurant for more like median or average quality restaurants in the in the suburbs that, yeah, that's that's a good, a good question. question yeah yeah this subsidy point made me think a little bit of college towns which i grew up in one i grew up in ann arbor and in the summer you have 90 plus percent of the amenities that you do during the year but there are no college students <laughs> competing right and just generally it feels quieter and stuff i say 90 some percent because some of the places will close i have limited hours but but then also you have these summer events that are scheduled so some people would say you have more than 100 percent of the value and that's a stretch out over a year but in a business district, like a downtown area, you kind of have that happening every day. And now we don't, or not to the same extent. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right, Greg. I don't want to go too far off topic, but I used to teach at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the summers are just amazing there because there's so many fewer students and you have all this awesome amenities and it's on the water too. Yes, college towns are awesome, especially in the summer. I had a clarifying question and then a couple of questions from a firm perspective. Yeah. So the clarifying question is just, how do we know how much of this is due to life cycle effects combined with some macroeconomic trends, right? So millennials sort of famously were postponing all the life cycle things, and they're a very large generation. And then during COVID, there was a big householder boom. There was a lot of home buying activity in part due to interest rates, in part due to work from home as well. And so I guess I'm wondering, does the model try to tease these apart or do we not have the data to do that yet? That's a great question, actually, Greg. So we, the model gets at this exactly because everybody's a renter in the model and there's no interest rates. What we try to do is we say, okay, so immediately post-COVID, 
let's keep the supply of space fixed because developers haven't had the chance to add a lot of new residential supply. How much do we see rents going up just from the increase in work from home? And what we find is it leads to a pretty dramatic increase in rents. Not quite what we see in the data, but pretty close because then we can capitalize them into house prices. Over the longer term, so our counterfactual, everybody's still renters, but we do allow supply to adjust. And we have one where supply is perfectly elastic. So basically supply expands as much as you need it to, to bring rents back down to their pre-pandemic level. And then we have another one, which we think is a little bit more realistic, which is what we call the bomb snow counterfactual, because here we're actually taking elasticities from the data in terms of supply. And it looks a lot like the short run, because unfortunately, supply elasticities in residential are just not that high. So you do add supply. Unfortunately, they've gotten lower over time, right? So to your point, we we all of our counterfactuals do not look at demographic change from aging into prime homeownership years, or you're right, the rise in rates was certainly part of it. And we don't completely replicate the increase in house prices, but we get pretty close to what we saw in the data just from the increase in work from home. That's fascinating. I think between low interest rates and the millennial bulge and delayed household formation culminating in a householder boom, I think a lot of people I've seen posit that as a major explanation. And it's just interesting to hear how much might be attributable to work from home. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that one of the other factors which you haven't brought up and is not in our model, but I think is part of the rise in home prices was we had record levels of personal savings. So we've never seen personal savings quite as high as we did sort of in part due to the stimulus. And this was especially true among the households most likely to be constrained in getting together a down payment. And so that I think gave a lot of households access to home ownership, or at least led them to want to buy a home. And I think that was part of the rise in home prices as well as that record personal savings. A lot of it eventually filtered into households trying to buy a home. And then from a firm perspective, if we can jump to that side just for a minute, I guess I have two questions. One is about how firms are thinking about these things. And then another is how things that are not really present right now might show up in future productivity data. And that's a little more out there. So we'll start with the first one. I, in one paper and many other people in in other papers have posited that one thing that might make, in theory, work from home really stick is if firms see an advantage in it. And one advantage might be economizing on space. But if people are coming in three days a week or even two days a week, some firms might switch to hot desking, but some others are not going to be comfortable with that or it may not be really be feasible. So they may not be able to. Have you seen anything about this? Yeah. So I think we're still sort of trying to see the shake out of the office market. I do think that firms, even if they anticipate teams coming in at the same time, if you're not doing as much individual work, I don't think they're willing to give you quite as much space. The floor plates are changing for office buildings where they have to have more collaborative space and that takes up a little bit less. The decline in rents, I do think, is real in office. I think firms are economizing on space. One thing in our model, employees, in actual fact, they kind of pay them indirectly to rent their own home office space. They don't give them an office allowance. But the other thing they do save on a little bit is employees are willing to take wage cuts to do some work from home. Employees really, really like work from home, particularly like a little bit of work from home. We know that from the experimental data. So I think what's going on a little bit is they're basically, because in our model, to to Jeff's point about what is not in the model, we don't have any labor market frictions in our model, 
right? So they're basically all spot wages. There's not sort of long-term wage contracts where there's some negotiation of getting you back to the office. But I think what's going on out in the real world right now is effectively firms are saving on their office space when they renegotiate their lease. Or There's a lot of sublease. There's a huge amount of leases in the office sublease market right now. So they are saving a little bit and they're not actually passing this on to workers in the form of an office allowance. They're basically, in some sense, workers are facing a real wage cut because they're renting more home office space, right? But they're very happy to do that. So this is better for firms, this is better for employees, provided it's not so much work from home that we pass that productivity advantage. Again, most employees are going to be most productive doing some work at home, some work at the office. And employees would like to do even more though at home. That seems to be the tension. So if you ask employees how much they want to work from home, you get a much higher answer than what firms want. And so that's where I think firms are trying to kind of get people back to the office. And as the labor market gets a little bit less favorable to employees, you'll see the workers are going to be coming in a little bit more than they would ideally like to. Work from home may be moderating inflation a little bit if it's causing wages to be suppressed relative to where they would be if people were back in the office. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I know that's not a claim you make in the paper, but- No, that is definitely not a claim we make, but I do think that's right. Yeah, because in effect, you give people a non-pecuniary benefit by allowing them to do more work from home. That said, I think there's been a shift in terms of what the starting point is because for so many workers for so long, and especially in some of these bluer states where they were able to work from home 100% for two years. So then the starting point is I'm 100% remote instead of whatever your pre-pandemic. So I think that's the sort of conflict going on between workers and employers right now. Andrew, if I can take you in a little bit of a speculative direction as well. We've been talking a lot about hybrid and the advantages of in-person work for certain jobs or certain tasks and so on. But even if that allows firms to economize on space to some extent, they could economize a lot more if they didn't ever have to think about maintaining a physical plant. And I wonder if there are maybe some firms or types of firms that would become more productive in a full work from home default setup. So these might be either businesses that are just more modular by nature, like the call center model that you were mentioning. That setup might also reward managers who are just really good at managing remote teams and reward employees who are good at being managed on remote teams, maybe with a monthly meetup or something like that, but perhaps even offsite, they really would be fully remote. And so I wonder if the model would sort of allow or help explain that as something that prior to 2020 didn't have much of an opportunity to crop up because it was just so unusual. Of course, there were examples, but if that's a a kind of asterisk to the productivity story that we might just see firms that we don't really see a lot of right now. That's a great question, Greg. And I think to Jeff's point about modeling choices, there's no heterogeneity in our model by industry on the relative productivity of work from home and work at the office. In practice, I do think there's probably a lot of heterogeneity. There's certain things you really need to do in person and certain jobs that involve much more in-person required or in-person high productivity. Anecdotally, the call centers, that's where the biggest holes are in the office market. So we actually have a lot of call centers in Salt Lake City. And when I talk to commercial brokers, they can't get these people back in the office. And you kind of understand why, because it's a single task. And as long as they can monitor, so you brought up a little bit, Greg, the idea of monitoring. 
And I think this is where the technology is probably going to evolve. It's already been evolving the last couple of years. But if you can monitor workers that are not in the office really well from home, and it's a single task that doesn't require a lot of collaboration, and employees like being able to work from home, that's where it's going to be really hard to fill those call center spaces. So I do think there's a lot of heterogeneity. I mean, the other sector, IT is a little bit mixed because there's definitely some 100% remote software workers, but then there are some startups where they get a lot of benefit from collaborating. I think there's also some, and this is not in the model either, but there's some social benefits for some people of going into the office. Some people actually like their colleagues. A lot of people still meet their spouses at the office. And this is especially true for younger workers, right? So older workers, I think the biggest challenge offices are having getting employees back to work is the older workers because they're more likely to live in the suburbs. And so they have a longer commute. They're already usually partnered for their productivity. They're completing tasks. They're like, I can do my individual job from home but they can't manage very well from home. So I think that's the challenge. But yeah, I do think that's possible completely that there's some industries and occupations that are going to be better done 100% remote. And there is some academic research from pre-pandemic. I think it's Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington who looked at the selection bias in these call center workers pre-pandemic. We know that it was not the most productive employees that chose work from home, even in the call centers. And we also know that there was a bunch of people effectively doing childcare at the same time they said they were working. And so once you take this away, <laughs> Jeff is saying he was one of those workers. Okay, that might have been even I mean, pre-pandemic. Some people were forced <laughs> to uh, do childcare while working remotely during the pandemic. But yeah, I do think that's going to shift. One thing that is in the model in terms of the amount of remote work longer term is we actually see it increasing even more once residential space gets a little bit cheaper. So residential space was super expensive until you can expand it. Once you can expand the amount of residential space, it's not quite so expensive to get a bigger home office. And so you're going to do more of it once you're in more comfortable digs, basically. All that thought that is super fascinating. We're coming to the end of our time. So I want to give the last few minutes to talking about the last part of the paper, which is what we get out of the model having been developed and then estimated. Now we're going to run some simulations with it. What for you were some of the most interesting results out of those simulations? I think that we were surprised the decline in office rents wasn't bigger. So in our counterfactuals, we get a decline in office rents of somewhere between five and 10%. And that's actually really close to what you see in the data, both when you look at REIT prices, as well as newly signed leases, which was very surprising to us. And I think what's going on there is that there's still a set of workers that can't be 100% remote. So that was a little surprising to us. This is not a good situation. If you own office property, you are not a happy guy right now, in part because you have to put all this capital expenditure into changing what is in the office because it's going to be more collaborative tasks. But it's not the sort of doomsday scenario you hear. I think that's one of the things we found surprising. One of the other things I found surprising, so in the model, we have both an intensive margin of work from home and an extensive margin. So the extensive is how many people do some work from home. And the intensive is conditional on doing some, how much do you do? And I was a little surprised that it's basically 99% of college educated workers that are in a telecommutable occupation that we find are going to do some work from home going forward. So it's basically everybody. The other thing we saw is that's where the biggest productivity improvement is. And the intuition is because you already saw so many of them doing some, you need to have a, all of the 
overall increase in the amount of work from home. Most of it had to come along the intensive margin. I think the other thing we found where one of our initial, our very, very early intuitions about this scenario was that there'd be a big rise in income inequality and consumption inequality. And that's because this is another form of skill-biased technological change. Over the last 40 years or so, most of the technologies that we've seen either developed or adopted have primarily made our college-educated workers more productive. And this is another example of that, right? My landscaper is still not really doing a lot of Zoom. Neither is my cleaning lady, really is these white-collar jobs. And that means there's a rise in overall income inequality. I agree. Those are some of the most interesting implications. I guess we'll see what happens with the AI, large language models and the like, whether that will be, again, another skill-biased technology shock or not. For the cognitive routine task, you're thinking that a lot of our skilled workers are doing. That's quite possible. I teach at University of Utah. We send a lot of our students to Goldman. It's largely their sort of operations team. And we sometimes think that, will these jobs be automated away in 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. years? I don't know, because we're not sure that they're the cognitive non-routine tasks that we think are sort of the highest reward that can't be automated by AI. Yeah. I think what I'm learning from the observing these LLMs is that a lot of the things that I thought were cognitive non-routine are actually cognitive routine. <laughs> I see. Okay. I've had yeah. kind of the opposite reaction, probably just the bespoke self-conception of the practice of law and what that involves. But it seems to me when I've formulated legal queries, it really is about formulating the right legal query in order to get a good chat GPT response. And I'm not going to say that formulating a good query is equivalent to actually doing the task. So there might be some assistive role there, but you have to be really good at forming the query. And so I guess I'm wondering if this is going to end up being another skills-biased intervention where it actually just assists knowledge workers further to raise their game, but we'll see. Well, I think podcasting is safe for now. The millions Uh, that Jeff and I make are not going anywhere. Yeah. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us to talk about a fascinating paper. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been great chatting with you guys. So now is the time for our appendices. Andrew, why don't you kick things off? Okay, so these are not about work from home, other than the shout outs to the new paper by Mandy Pillay and Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington is the third one on this new paper on the productivity of work from home among remote workers. So have a look at that paper because it's really cool and it's not on call center workers. I love anything David Simon has ever produced. There's a great show in particular for the urban audience called Show Me a Hero. So this is a miniseries. It's Mm -hmm. on HBO. And it's basically about Yonkers, New York's attempt to desegregate their housing. So their income-restricted housing. They were ordered by a judge because the schools were so segregated in Yonkers, New York. And the judge said the only way you can desegregate the schools is by desegregating the housing. And it's interesting because it's a good look at municipal politics in sort of a medium-sized city. But it's also the most blatant racism in Yonkers, New York in the 80s. We tend to think of racism as something that happens in the Deep South in the 50s and 60s. But this is Yonkers, New York. So Yonkers, New York almost goes bankrupt because they're in contempt of court because they won't desegregate the housing. It's a six episode miniseries, really good watch. It's got Winona Ryder in it. True story. So have a look at that. That's my first one. And then why don't you guys go ahead with yours and I'll come back to what my second one is. 
I love David Simon's stuff too. I love when our guests recommend TV shows. And I feel like David Simon, you know, let's say like Through the Wire and onwards, right? It's just such an interesting observer of urban social problems and, and the economics of what's going on. Off. All right, Greg, you're up to bat. So my appendix is a plug for an article that I wrote that relates to today's paper. It's called The Puzzle and Persistence of Big Law Clustering. And I tried to talk about two things in the paper that I think relate to our conversation today. The first is how these big law firms, these are large international law firms based in the US that are, I look at just the top tier by profits per partner, which is a measure of profitability. And the first thing I look at actually is is just why are they clustered, not just in big cities in the US, but in the biggest cities. And within those metro areas, they're in the priciest neighborhoods. And as I dug into the data, I actually found that they are overwhelmingly located in two neighborhoods in Manhattan, even speaking nationally. And even some of the ones that are nominally headquartered elsewhere, like Chicago or Boston or Los Angeles, have their largest office in either Midtown Manhattan or in the financial district. So I wrote this earlier in the pandemic. I started, I think, in 2020, and it was published, I think, in early uh, 2022. But you know, one question that's come up a lot over the years is whether firms are going to sort of spread out more. They haven't. And then, of course, the work from home piece is if firms have chosen already not to economize on real estate and also potentially save money on wages by doing so pre-COVID, would they, once COVID abated, choose to save some money in those areas through remote work? And I do use some data, but this is primarily descriptive paper. My sort of prediction was if they did, the reason would be some of the things that you're talking about in your paper, Andrew, which is not so much technological advancement, although the familiarity doesn't hurt, but really just innovations in management and sort of greater familiarity with work from home, and also the elimination of selection bias, or at least the mitigation of selection bias of the type that that you mentioned in my colleague Emma Harrington's um, 2020 paper with Natalia Emanuel on um, call center work from home. So I think there's some stuff there that would be of interest to listeners. And uh, I really just, in, one reason I enjoyed your paper is how much the modeling and your use of data to drive it, a lot of these really important points. I'm going to recommend a blog post. I usually tell people that they can recommend whatever they want. I don't think anyone's recommended a tweet yet, which I'm still waiting for that. So I'm going to recommend this blog post by Jordan Rosenthal K, who's a PhD student at the University of Chicago. Post from May 3rd, it's called Growth in Cities Revisited. And it revisits a classic paper by Glazer, Kalal, Schenkman, and Schleifer that was in the JPE in 1992. Most of our listeners are probably familiar in some way with this paper, but the original paper evaluated the role of, of three different kinds of agglomeration externalities in urban growth. So the way that the Glazer et al. crew classified these things were as follows. So the, the first are these martial arrow roamer externalities that firms get some kind of benefits from knowledge fillers within their industry. So they're learning from other firms that are doing the same things near them. Then there's these Jane Jacobs style actionalities where firms are actually learning from firms who are doing stuff that's very different from them. So these across industry spillovers. And then the third force here are these Schumpeterian Porter forces where, you know, actually what, what's really important for growth is competition between firms in the same industry. And so you either innovate or you die, right? 
So that paper evaluated city growth between 1956 and 1987. For those of you keeping score, 1987 was 36 years ago. <laughs> so Jordan in this post has done us all the favor and extended this analysis to 2015. One of the core messages of the original Glazer paper stands up to the intervening 30 years, which is that cities that are very diverse, that have a lot of different industries in them, they're the ones that grow the fastest. And so this is like a point in favor. That was This was the original conclusion, one of the original conclusions of the Glazer paper, and still seems to hold up in Jordan's analysis. Can I ask a qu- clarification question? Because I haven't read this blog. I'll read it right after this. But when you say grow the most, do you mean the grow the most on per capita income or overall employment? Growth in size. So yeah. In size. yeah. What do I like about this? I like that it's a replication, right? And stuff like this is not going to get it into the JPE, but it's extremely valuable for us to know about things like this. And I think blog posts are a great venue and I encourage everybody to write more blog posts. Andrew, you want to loop back? and Yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah? Uh, that's a great source. I, I, I'm going to look at that right after this call. The one thing, and it's unrelated to work from home again, but I think it's really important for urbanists, this book that's making the rounds by Nolan Gray called Arbitrary Lines, this sort of argument against any zoning. I think a lot of your listeners were already on board with it, but I think it is a good take even on sort of the best case for zoning restrictions in terms of externalities, that's the sort of urban economics explanation for why we have zoning. I found it a fun read, and I think it's great to think the way planners think, because planners govern our cities in a lot of ways. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Great chatting with you. For Greg's show, I'm Jeff Lynn. Thanks for listening to today's show. Our producer is Courtney Campbell. Check the show notes for links to the articles that we discussed on the show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Densely Speaking. If you don't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover the show. Finally, the views expressed are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any other institution with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 